Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Um, it's our custom to go around the room and say our names. If you came in later and you're new or you have uh, returning from a long absence, let us know so we can welcome you properly. My name is Grisha. Stuart. My name is Robert. My name is Michael. <coughs> My name is Prasada. I'm Greg. My name is Jim. My name is Lomia. My name is Asa. Salman. Jason. My name is Jerry. Michael. I'm Clint. Francesco. I'm Ed. Matthew. Larry. Jack. My name is Cass. I'm David. Tony. Peter. Jim. David. Ted. One. I'm Hal. Stephen. My name is Joe. Don. Ivan. Hey, welcome, everyone. Um, our teacher today is Stephen Demi. Um, Stephen is a member of Community Mental Health and the Chair of the Masters in Counseling Psychology Curriculum at CIS, CIIS. He is a licensed psychotherapist in California and is a nationally certified counselor. Stephen is an ordained Buddhist priest and is the co-founder and chief education officer of the San Francisco Mindfulness Foundation. The SF Mindfulness Foundation provides mindfulness-based relapse prevention and addiction services provider training. Dr. Tierney lectures and leads workshops and, re and retreats nationally and has taught at a number of universities and <coughs> assignments at the University of San Francisco, JFK University, and the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine. Stephen's areas of interest include Buddhist psychology and mindfulness-based therapies for addiction, recovery, and resiliency services. And uh, he'll also be leading our retreat, upcoming retreat, which we have more information about on the table. So. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. You reach a certain age and you hear someone read something like that about you and you have to check to make sure it's not a memorial service. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, 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 every time I get the opportunity to come, I swear I'm going to come every Sunday and then the next Sunday it's 8 o'clock in the morning and I start moving. And, and, uh, it's intentions. It's all about intentions, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, what I wanted to talk a little bit about today is truth, uh, and uh, a couple, couple, couple of things about that in our current culture that um, I want to leave a lot of time at the end, so you can get rid of all that stuff that just came up before you go home to, or out with your loved ones. Um, but you know, we've had, um, between Harvey and the temperatures in Northern California in the last week, um, we have had what seems clear to this human being, um, the impact of uh, human beings' lifestyles on, on the environment. Um, and yet, 
there are, there's an actual thing, a group of people who identify themselves as climate change deniers. Um, so there's enough of them that they had to have a title. And, and it's like, I, I don't quite understand um, what it is they're seeing. Um, and as I was thinking about it yesterday, I was thinking that perhaps they have their uh, meetings um, in the headquarters of the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> because I did not know up until a few days ago that there was such a thing, that it actually has thousands of members. And so I looked them up on the web, and one of their pieces of literature <clears throat> actually says that the idea that the Earth is flat um, can, uh, is the work of Satan, quote, um, and Satan got into people's heads and made them think the world was flat, um, and that this particular person who was the new president was writing to let us know that that couldn't possibly be true because he rode a bike to his office that day and the bike stayed on the ground, so obviously the world was flat. <laughs> so, so um, truth comes in in um, lots of ways, right? Um, and I think there's lots of ways that we as Buddhists, as Buddhists gay men, can really bring to our communities um, um, something, something very useful. Um, one of the other things that's been um, concerning to me is that I read the newspaper this morning, as did many of you, and in three different places in the newspapers that I read, um, there was the expression, <clears throat> we must begin the conversation about da da da. One of those was, as you often hear, referring to race and privilege in the U.S. One of those was referring to the nutrition habits um, of adults in the U.S., um, and the final one was talking about the, um, the environmental stuff that I mentioned before. And it used to just, you know, as an activist and sort of a type A personality, it used to really be off-putting to me when someone would say, let's start the conversation, you know, as though the environment had been waiting for them to decide it was time to engage in a conversation about it. Um, or the nutrition habits hadn't been discussed and, and planned, and, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, and then <clears throat> I opened yesterday's mail and there was a letter from the Zen Buddhist Society of America saying, very earnest, um, we must begin a conversation um, about what it should mean to be a priest or fully Dharma transmitted within American Zen Buddhism. That is a conversation that started 2,500 years ago. <laughs> and in almost every iteration of it, it's annoying and self-centered. And here was somebody with deep passion wanting to start a conversation, start the, not a, start the conversation. <laughs> so, you know, I think the thing that most troubles me about that right now is, is this idea that it waits for me. You know, like the truth is something that I will bring to, the, to this conversation. Um, and that idea that the conversation <clears throat> didn't happen before um, would be annoying, um, as I mentioned, but it's also deeply troubling <clears throat> in this day and age because I think it has a deeper meaning. I think it actually is a way for folks who are um, influencers or political folks um, to dismiss everything that's come before. You know, it's not just uh, coincidental, um, but it's an actual willful dismissal of all of the thought and, and um, intention and hard work that's gone before them so that they can somehow create this, um, you'll excuse the expression, new world order um, that they seem intent on, on uh, creating. So uh, there's a couple books that um, I've been reading and I brought them, we'll pass them around so um, folks can take a look at them if you want. Um, the first one is by Ken Welber, um, who's got some connections to the place I teach, CIS. 
Um, and it's called Trump and a post world, Trump and the post truth world, Trump and the post truth world. So, what he says in here is um, this: there's some wonderful stuff, um, and he talks about how we got to the situation where where we can um, live in a world where we're not clear what the truth is, um, and not from a good spiritual place, but we're constantly shifting. And you know, he talks a little bit about all the media and all the press and. You know, for many of us when we grew up, there might be a local newspaper or two and a couple of stations. And you watch the news maybe a couple, a couple times a week or, you know, whatever. And now there are, you know, about 400 channels on our TV. They're on 24-7. And anytime you walk near the TV, it starts talking to you. Um, somebody who's absolutely sure that, that um, what they have to say uh, is the correct thing. And so he very, um, very clearly, and I want to use his words, um, uh, talks about that it's basically narcissism. Um, truth is whatever I want truth to be. Um, and he talks about the folks that organized the Brics, uh, Brexit um, campaign in England. Um, and in an interview afterwards, the guy whose name I'm forgetting um, uh, gave an interview and he said, well, of course, we said things that we absolutely knew were not true. It didn't matter if they were true. We wanted them to be true, so if we said them, they might become true. Um, and, and, you know, um, that's just kind of indicative, it seems to me, of, of um, some of the challenges that we're facing. Um, and, uh, and I know that you're going to spend the month of October talking about truth, um, and so you'll get, uh, you'll get a chance to, to think about that some more. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to set my alarm clock and try to join you because some of those topics in October sound pretty good. Um, but th this this narcissism thing um, is is really quite troubling for me, and, and I'm guessing for a lot of you as well. And um, I looked up a website just so we can share for those that aren't quite clear. I think, especially in America right now, we have an idea. If someone says narcissist something comes to our mind. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about that. Um, but Although we may in question and answer time. Um, but here's what, um, there's a website called Psych Central. And this is how they describe um, narcissism. See if you know anybody that fits this. The truth is whatever I say in the moment. I will change it whenever it suits me. I do not need to be consistent. And it is amazing how often I convince people I am right by speaking with absolute certainty. And even more troubling for us, I think, um, is this idea um, from the Brexit folks, I am largely unaware of how my words and actions may impact others. The truth is, I actually do not care. Mm -hmm. If I get what I want, all else is collateral damage. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you don't know anybody like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I'm guessing that a lot of us do know people like that. Um, in fact, at some brief moment in our spiritual development, we, we may have been those folks. Uh, I'm not confessing I just said it's possible. <laughs> possible. Um, so I think as we look at truth, um, one of the things that comes up for me is this, this whole idea that if we have enough news and that if we have new research that evolves our current thinking or our current practices, that somehow that's going to answer people's need for the truth. And I think what we're seeing in our Buddhist community and in the education and healthcare worlds where I work and in the world, I think what we're seeing is people who aren't actually looking for any data or any evidence. 
And part of the reason for that is that a lot of folks, and, and some of us in this room, grew up in an age where we had a certain set of beliefs. We were taught what was and what to believe and how we should use that information. <clears throat> and that that information would basically be unchanging. Here are certain things we, truths we hold to be self-evident, right? So, <clears throat> as things began to change, there's a sense um, that we saw in, in November, excuse me, in the election, there's a sense that our truths and our foundations are being taken away somehow in, in, some, in some populations. Um, and, you know, political discussion afterwards during refreshments about whether or not that makes any sense politically and how we respond to that um, at, at the break, we can, we can have some fun with that. But, but the fact of the matter is, I have a belief um, from my experience uh, as a teacher and as a therapist that people don't really, um, aren't looking for data. We have lots of data, libraries, computers, media filled with data, experts doing appropriate research and, um, and then large research and media corporations spreading all kinds of news that may or may not be the case. My sense is that people are right now are feeling unmoored, right? Do you know anybody like that? Just feeling like a sense of not sure where we stand and not sure where we might stand tomorrow. And it's my experience that when people are feeling unmoored, they're not looking for data. They're looking for connection. And I think that's one of the things that, that we as a spiritual community bring, bring to each other um, and bring to the world at large, I think. Um, I know that when um, the election happened last year, um, that one of the things that was up for me was that I, I packed a bag and went to Ireland. Um, and I was going to stay there because, and this was before the doomsday experience, um, but I was going to stay there because, you know, I didn't have to live, blah, 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 blah. And Ireland had just passed by popular vote, the first country in the world, gay and lesbian marriage, and, you know, subsequently elected a gay prime minister. So I was, you know, I didn't go live in paradise. Um, so, you know, fortunately I have a meditation practice, and in, during meditation and in my, in my thinking <clears throat> after meditation, you know, up from the cushion with the mind of Zazen, so a wonderful thing and a challenging thing. What I knew was that I, I've spent, you know, uh, more than 60 years be, being a citizen of this country, trying to be involved in some reasonable way. And I've spent the last 27 years being a member of this and these communities, um, trying to make a contribution in terms of, of helping people think about ideas and, and be open to new ideas. And so if I, um, the morning after an election, packed up my worldly goods and ran away. Um, I just, uh, it feels to me like I could not have um, uh, really comfortably lived with myself. So I'm here, um, and my solution is I go to Ireland for a month a year now. So, mm -hmm. so I'm here and I'm a good citizen, and, and I get some relief from time to time. Um, but I want to um, talk about another book. Um, so why don't we um, pass that one around? If anybody wants to just take a little bit of that Another book is a book by Robert Wright, and it's called Why Buddhism is True. Um, and um, he is actually coming to San Francisco on Thursday to talk about this book at CIS. Um, but, um, but I think it's an it's a interesting book. Um, I had occasion to have a phone conversation with him last week. I said, um, because I'm a very serious academic, I said, Why Buddhism is True. 
Um, well, this is good because your second book can be called Why Buddhism is Not True. <laughs> and your third book can be called Why Buddhism is Neither True Nor False. <laughs> and of course, the end of the series will be Why is Buddhism Both True and False? <laughs> I'm fairly certain that he stopped breathing for a few minutes in, in the middle of that. <laughs> but I thought it was delightful. Um, so so um, he talks to us in this book about um, from the Samajahara uh, Sutra, he gives us a poem. <clears throat> Knowing all things to be like this, a mirage, a cloud castle, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. And I promise not to read to you very much, but I just want two little short things that he says. Um, whichever term you use, the upshot is that the world is out there. It seems solid and structured, full of things that are distinct and tangible. There is less than meets the eye. This, would, <clears throat> this, excuse me, this world of apparent forms is in some sense, as that sutra says, a mirage or a cloud. As you ponder these words, formlessness and emptiness, two other words may come to your mind. Crazy and depressing. <laughs> it seems crazy that the world out there isn't real, that things that seem substantial are in some sense devoid of content. It also seems kind of depressing. Um, I don't run into a lot of upbeat, fulfilled people who go around rejoicing in the emptiness of it all. <laughs> so there we are again um, in a Buddhist situation where we're, ta <laughs> where we're talking about um, is what is emptiness. And like I say, I know you're going to talk about that, so we'll, we'll mention it a little bit today and, and, uh, and we'll have a chance in October during the four-week um, study and the retreat, hopefully to talk more about what does all that mean. But what we do know um, in Buddhism is that we have a relationship with truth, um, and that we in fact believe that there are two truths, right? The two great truths. One um, is relative truth, the other is absolute truth. Uh, and, you know, those are people who have been studying those for 2,500 years and offering ideas and thoughts and corrections and new evidence. And, um, and you know, I invite everyone um, to do that and find a way to be comfortable with it. But for those who might be newer, one of the easier ways to think about it is just to think about, um, here's Stephen and here's a chair. Um, those are two distinct and separate things. Um, Stephen has um, arms and legs, the chair has legs <coughs> and a back. Um, and so we might think of those as two separate things. Um, but in fact, at the moment, they're one thing. There's, there's this right here. Um, so, you know, I think if we think about it in Buddhist terms, there's also the wider context that you can't think about Stephen and the chair without thinking about my parents, uh, my, my current life experience, uh, you know, the state of my health. But, you know, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, in fact, there is no separate, separate entity here or here. Um, and the Buddha observed that the only way to get to the absolute truth is through meditation. So for all the 2,500 years of really good books, um, including that one so far, um, uh, and for all of the teachings and for all of the rituals and for all of the opportunities to, to resonate with the truth, um, the fact of the matter is that, um, that the truth the truth is out there, um, and and that we can have a relationship with it, and the relationship with it is that our truth is in the present moment. We meditate not with a gaining mind. We meditate so that we can have that experience of being in the present moment. 
And in the present moment, it doesn't matter if these are two separate things, right? I'm here, I'm with all of you, we had a chance to meditate. And so that becomes a truth. And it, becomes, it becomes way less important um, for me to be able to do um, my definitions. There's a, a great poem uh, that I'll share with you, a uh, piece of it, um, by uh, Pablo Neruda, and it's called An Ode to Peace and Quiet. Peace and quiet, a moment's rest or a day's, from the depths we will gather minerals. From your unspeaking face, light will issue. This is how we will perfect our actions. So, so in Buddhism, <clears throat> I think we have this opportunity um, to, to bring forward um, uh, a community that cares and a community that works. And sometimes we hear the criticism of, of Buddhism um, that it's sort of otherworldly and very self-centered and we come together, sit down, don't talk to each other, get quiet, silent, recharge our batteries and go off to the world. Um, and as, as you all know, that that's, there's nothing in Buddhist history that suggests that, that that's the way we should be practicing Buddhism. Um, <clears throat> the Buddha himself, when he stood up, went out and found some people and began to do service immediately, right? His five old friends, he gave the teaching, he had learned something, which was um, how to be awakened or enlightened, and he immediately went out and started doing teaching and supporting these five guys who were very confused and didn't quite know what to do, and he provided them with information and support, and um, ultimately, of course, with uh, uh, transmission and inclusion in his new community. So all of that was there from the beginning. And when we talk about um, our practice of Buddhism, you know, we can think about the Vietnam, Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who says, who's taught us about engaged Buddhism, and says that engaged Buddhism means that we need to operate from a foundation of meditation. And, and that from there, we need to absolutely bring that calmness. We need to ex absolutely bring that spiritual essence into our dealings in the world. That if we change one mind at a time um, by doing what the Buddha did, which is to say, ah, there's a different way. There's a different way to live. There's a different way to be. Um, and here's the possibility of it. And, you know, as we know in mindfulness, it's to be completely aware and non-judgmental, right? To be aware and non-judgmental. How many of you are non-judgmental on the regular list? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm good. Yeah, one. During the break, you can tell us how to, how to get there. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that we have discerning minds. We have these discerning minds that, that want us um, to be protected, you know? In the history of, of our species, you know, our systems were designed to protect us from various predators. And so, you know, we developed this way of being in the world that said, ah, I might not be safe, and so I'm going to look out for, um, look out for um, who might be causing me harm. And more importantly, uh, I'm already going to be planning, the minute I see you, I'm going to be planning that you could be dangerous, and so I've already planned a way to, to box that up and make me safe. Um, and our whole meditation process is to stop that. Right? Our whole meditation practice offers us the opportunity, I shouldn't say to stop it, you may meditate um, with other benefit. Um, but we don't meditate with the gaining mind, but when we meditate, the experience that myself and others have is that we are less likely um, to jump to those conclusions. We are less likely to live in fear. We are less likely um, to constantly be 
in a you and me against the world situation. So there's a, a wonderful Buddhist teaching that, that um, I'm really fond of, which is called the Zen Zen Main. Um, you've heard it described as uh, the verses about trust in the heart or verses about trust in the mind, which is a very um, uh, interesting distinction in Buddhist thought, of course, um, because where does compassion come from and where does wisdom come from? Um, the usual answers to that are sort of reversed. But just a couple of pieces of that. The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to preferences. Um, the more you talk and think about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Right? And the way is a perfect, like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject things that we lose sight of the actual nature of things. So, so I think in those teachings, what it's telling us is that we have um, a way of being in the world. It's evolved, it's changed, it's ongoing, and, and the world we find ourselves in is the world of 2017. Uh, and so we can spend long, long amounts of time just having personal angst about things or personal joy. Because, you know, there could be some Donald Trump supporters in here, who knows? Um, so personal angst or great personal joy, um, and in either case, a sense that we've got this right now, but we may not have it for long. Um, and the feelings and emotions and thoughts that come with that. You know, human beings, um, uh, as, as people, as creatures, um, we like stability. We do not like to live with distress. We do almost anything to stay out of distress. And so part of that anything to stay out of distress is, is that shaping a truth that works for us. Finding the elements of a truth that will allow us um, to, to be safe in my seat to be comfortable with all of you, um, to be out there in the world um, where, where all the stuff that's going on is going on, um, to try to understand floods and fires and, and you know, um, how can the environment sort of be turning on us, um, never mind that we turned on it first, and it's, you know, it's, there's that protection thing again. Um, but I think that that's, that's a, the opportunity that we have in our practice is to bring that sort of sense um, of a, that a truth um, is all relative um, except the absolute truth. And the absolute truth, mildly put, is that we are all connected, um, that we're connected with everything that came before us and everything that came after. And that can be a really daunting set responsibility, right? You came today thinking you were going to hear a 15 or 20 minute talk and get some cookies and peanuts and leave. And I just told you you're responsible for the entire universe now and forevermore. <laughs> so I hope you're feeling energetic today. Um, so um, Buddhist texts rarely, if ever, talk about good and bad, right? Or right or wrong. It's just, it's not a concept that we use a lot. What we use are the expressions skillful and unskillful. Um, and often when Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, he says, um, useful and not useful, right? And so, so here's a new way to look at things. It's like, I don't have to have a big argument with everybody about what is the meaning of a particular doctrine or a political fact or whatever. Um, I can bring interest to that. I can bring genuine curiosity to that. I can bring compassion to that, which allows each piece, each person to speak and to be heard. Um, but the fact of the matter is, for me, I'm going to um, engage with facts and probably with people and situations and jobs and living situations 
that are skillful. Jobs that allow me to be the person that I'm trying to be. Someone grounded in a spiritual practice, someone who brings the mind of Zen into all of my activities in the world in terms of wisdom and compassion, um, and somebody um, who is trying on a regular basis, um, as the great Buddhist teacher Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high, right? I mean, that's, that's like the ultimate teaching in, in this sphere. Um, and, and even that teaching, of course, um, produces a slight challenge, right? So, and the slight challenge that that teaching produces is that when they go low, requires us to judge what they're doing, right? So that can go to the right or wrong thing. I think if we have a slight, uh, a slight uh, long-term spiritual practice, we know, like when something doesn't feel skillful, when someone speaks um, in a way that's challenging, uh, I think, I don't know if I said this already, but Thich Nhat Hanh has, that, has, has a teaching that says, before you speak, take a moment, take a deep breath, and ask yourself three questions before speaking. Um, is it kind, is it necessary, and is it timely? Right? So, and he teaches that the very fact of stopping long enough to ask those three questions will often leave you in a position of not having to speak. But if you stop long enough to ask those three questions, so some teachings um, using that using a variation of that start out with "Is it true?" And I happened to be um, had the privilege of being in a lecture that that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh gave, and he said he doesn't say that actually in the beginning. <clears throat> Is it true? Because that's so evaluative, and that we have to you know rush to the computer and get data and information and and read multiple analysis and all that sort of stuff. Um, or, um, as, uh, as Ken Wilber said, we just have to, you know, we don't have to read any data, we can just, I said it, so it must be right. Um, and, and of course, we try, we're trying pretty much to stay away from that. But the teaching is, we don't look, you know, that teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh is, we don't look to say first, is it true? Because we don't know. But I know that if someone says something to me, that feels a little bit sharp or a little bit painful, and and I don't know if any of you have this experience, but I can tell that I have just stopped listening to them. Mm -hmm. I'm planning my response, <laughs> and I would like my response to put a very large exclamation point on whatever nonsense they just presented. Um, and so, so instead, what I try to do, and what we all have the opportunity to do in our practice, really gives us the foundation for, is just to stop and say, this person too. Um, is a sentient being. Um, and this person, too, is really just trying to get through life like the rest of us are without suffering too much. And maybe if they've had a good community experience like we have here, um, with not just not suffering, but with an end to suffering, elimination of suffering, and at least in some moments of our day and our week and our month and our lives, um, some sense of interconnection and some sense of safety and some sense that the world is actually okay. So whatever the person said, even if it was aimed at me in an unkind way, my response, the response that I would like to have, always progress, not perfection, the response I would like to have is a response of saying, ah, what is it you're saying? Let me really understand what you're saying. And, and really understand it from your experience of it, from your knowledge of it. Um, and then if we have a discussion, it's two people fully formed that are having a discussion. And so then you might ask, what about Kellyanne Conway? So, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's for out there over the nuts and fruits. Um, 
But, you know, so, so I, I lightly mention her just because there are some people who, and the people that, um, that Ken Wilber uh, and, the, and the article report, uh, report about, that actually know they're not telling the truth, they do it for a living and they've developed it into a profession. So that's a whole different, you know, some other day we'll have a longer talk about what, if anything, any of us want to do with that. But I think um, for today, what we really want to just think about is this whole opportunity um, to be engaged um, and, and to, to think about how we work with each other. Um, and, yeah, so um, uh, Reb Anderson, who's a teacher at, at uh, Green Gulch, puts it. Hmm? Oh, okay. Um, hopefully you know him and maybe like him. Um, but Reb teaches it this way. You don't have to work at what you are. Part of, who you, uh, part of what you are is what you think you are. But part of what you think you are is not what you are at all. It is just an aspect of being you. Being Buddha means being unattached to your thoughts about what you are. If you think you are a worthy person or an unworthy person, grasping those thoughts is the Buddha. So, so there's this possibility that we have in that beauty that Pablo Neruda talked about in terms of being still and being quiet. Um, how many of you were too busy last week at some point in your life? Yeah. And how many of you are going to have a frantic too busy this week coming up? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, the way a significant number of us live. Um, and we live that way. In some cases, we have so much to offer. You all have so much to offer mm -hmm. that you couldn't possibly not be busy because then we wouldn't get the benefit of your work and your wisdom. Um, and some of us stay that busy because if you stay busy, as Pema Shodun says, that can be a hiding place. Staying really busy can be a hiding place from looking at who you are and how you want to be and who you associate with. Um, because we do have a choice. You know, I could sit home on a Sunday morning um, and watch uh, Face the Press or Meet the Nation or whatever those shows are. <laughs> Clearly I didn't. But I could stay home and watch that and get all riled up, or um, I could come here or to a recovery meeting um, and spend some time being with people who care about themselves and each other. Uh, and that's a way I get to, to make a choice. <clears throat> and I don't try to shut people out of my life necessarily unless being engaged with relationship with somebody is harmful. And again, that's... that's uh, that's something that we know. But I think, you know, um, um, the great matter um, that we Buddhists are always looking at, the matter of life and death, um, and the idea that we should um, be working on those questions and knowing that ah, we don't actually know. Um, but what we do know is everyone is born and everyone dies. And so what we do know about our fears and our hates and our concerns is that everything has the power to arise everything abides for a while, and then everything departs, everything. And so this idea of, of the great matter, you know, that all things are impermanent, um, and that importantly, we don't own them. Even when we are engaged with them, even when we are um, working with a concept, a person, a place, a job, a family member, um, it's not like I have a boyfriend, I have a job. I am temporarily in, in relationship with those two things. And if we think of that, I think for many people, that's why it's the great matter, because for many people that thought of impermanence, it's like, I have a boyfriend, um, and he's fabulous, and someday he'll be gone. 
or Adhagan or something, something will change. Um, that can be, as, as the book said, that can be um, crazy making and depressing. Um, but the, the gift of our Buddhist practice is, <coughs> excuse me, that, that when we have this opportunity um, to really understand the wider truth, the larger truth, the great matter, as the Buddha put it, um, we have this opportunity to let go of some of that fear. Um, you know, what usually happens is if someone ends up in a divorce um, or a breakup or a death, the person that's experiencing that thinks, I cannot survive this. I don't know how anybody would live through this. I can't. Or if you get fired from a job, some people say, I'll never be employed again. Um, and the fact of the matter is that for 90%, 99%, I haven't done the research, so I'm making this up, um, for 99% of the people, you do live through it. Um, and in many of those cases, with the right connections to a loving community and a loving family, um, you not only live through it, but you live through it and learn to hold the memory of, of the love, hold the memory of that great work, hold the memory of the relationships, um, and move on to have new experiences. Um, new experiences built on what you learned from the old one. There's a saying that we don't learn from what we did, we learn from reflecting on what we did. So our meditation comes back to an opportunity to build a foundation on which we can sit or stand um, and engage with other folks. There's a, a poet that will cause some of you to roll your eyes named Cahil Gibran. And one of the things he said about himself was he said, um, God told me to love my enemy. And so I obeyed him by loving myself. So. <laughs> there we go. So we've got time for some questions or thoughts or your reflections on Kellyanne, uh, reflections on Kellyanne Conway or the Buddha or whatever you want to talk about. I had a meeting at work this week with, um, there were four of us, and one of them there was a woman who's my assistant, and then a woman who I had some issues with, and her boss. And I, as much as possible, in the moment, <clears throat> tried to understand where she was coming from. But the three questions that Thich Nhat Hanh says, my, my first reaction is, if I stop and think all of those things, I won't say anything in the meeting because I'll just be talking and listening. Do you, if you do that, do people slow down and stop being as defensive, do you think? So you can actually say something if it's all three of those things? Yeah, well, yeah, you can, yes, you can, first of all. Um, and I think nothing in Buddhism says that we should be um, abused or uh, verbally, emotionally, or physically abused. So, so if someone is doing you or your loved ones or your department harm, you certainly have a right um, to do social justice, to do, to do mm -hmm. something about that. I think what the teaching is about is that so often, especially in work situations, that you know it's a negotiation. And that means somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And so we come to the table with the idea that we're trying to set up a project and it's a good project doing good work for people in the community. And somebody's going to be in charge of it. And somebody's going to get a bigger budget than some other department. And somebody's going to get to talk to the press and somebody's not. You know, and somebody has to do cleanup at the end of the day. And so I know when the conversation starts that hmm, thinking about those items, I'd rather be in charge of the budget and not the cleanup. And, and as human beings, we start, right, to do this thing. And so, you know, if you're the manager, you have a responsibility to your, your clients, customers, people, and the people that work for you um, to, to make sure that it's a, a skillful and effective community. Um, but I think 
what this teaching teaches us in the workplace and in many other life situations is to stop first for at least a second, a minute, to say, am I speaking now so that we are able to serve our clients in the best, most effective way possible and, and, and achieve our goal? Or am I speaking because she's annoying and she's talking and I don't like it? And, and oftentimes, for me, there's, there's some combination of that. And on good spiritual days, there's a balance, you know, sort of. <laughs> and on other days, she's just annoying. <laughs> and, and so I have, to, I, I have this opportunity to use this practice to say, okay, okay. She is annoying, and, um, and we do need that portion of the budget to come to our department. So how do I figure out a way to not add any more rancor to the world? Yes. Uh, would you mind repeating the three considerations? Before speaking? Yeah. Is it kind? Is it necessary? And is it timely? Yeah. And it's and it's really like one of those. Um, it's like one of those, um, like in when John Kabat-Zinn teaches the word stop, stop, think, observe, and then proceed. So some of it is just that tool. Like if you just if you just say, okay, wait, wait, I'm not gonna, because I don't know about the rest of you, but I can feel it when somebody's really being annoying in a meeting I'm at. I could, it's, it's coming, it's coming, and the jaw's starting to tighten up, and my brain has kicked in because I'm going to be brilliant. And, and as soon as that starts to happen for me, I say, okay, take a breath, take a breath, and listen to the rest of what she says, um, and, and then perhaps respond. So some of it's just that tool, and you don't even have to say all those questions, you can just kind of tip that on. That will give you enough of a moment. Yeah. Hey, uh, my name's Ben, thank you uh, for being here today. Uh, so I got into uh, recovery two almost three years ago, and uh, you know ceased taking any mind and mental substances, and it's been a challenge with lots of benefits. Um, I've lost a lot of uh, several people. My best friend lost my brother, um, three other friends last year, uh, and then this morning a, a, a tremendous pillar of love and hope and spirit died uh, from a long battle with cancer in my recovery community. Um, amongst the many benefits is uh, my being able to access love. Um, if everything's impermanent, is love impermanent? Um, is there a core essence to love? Um, and if so, that would also beg the question, is there one to hate also? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, if, if it's the person I'm thinking of, thank goodness he got to be home with his family. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and, and, you know, sorry for all that loss you've had, and, and congratulations on three years it's that, that, with that going, those two things going on. Um, and so I think <clears throat> that the opportunity that we have is, is you know, I, I would hope for you that you get an opportunity to work with love, that sometimes it's stronger and sometimes it fades and sometimes it's challenged. Um, but I think as people in spiritual practice and people in recovery, I can't think of, and I'm happy to hear from others, I can't think of an incidence where hate would be, would be required, right? What I noticed for me when, when something's red hot, um, and I used to, you know, I might even say, regarding certain presidents or something that I hate, um, but I actually don't. I'm afraid of what he might do to our environment or to our healthcare system, but that's my fear, and my fear gets hot. Um, but I can't think of a useful opportunity to engage with hate. Um, I, I think uh, 
It's not to say it's not out there, but I, for me to engage in hate doesn't make any sense. And in terms of this love impermanent, well, you know, the, the easy Buddhist answer to that is, of course, because we're impermanent. And so if love generates in Buddhism from your, from your brain um, and compassion from your heart, um, at some point those things stop working. So, so in that, um, that's, a, that's a true sent answer. Um, and we can talk more later, but, but the fact of the matter is that love feels stronger sometimes and challenged sometimes. And, uh, you know, we've all had mornings where you wake up or middle of the nights where you wake up and think, I don't have any, it's gone. No one loves me, I don't love anybody else, the world is too messed up. Um, and for most of us, what I would encourage is that's a good time to say a little meditation or if you're a praying person, say a little prayer. If you're not a praying person, call somebody. You know, if you're not living in a building with people, um, call somebody and just say, you know what, I can't feel any love right now. I'm feeling really isolated. And I'm guessing that the fact of that phone call to somebody who would answer the phone um, will, will restart that fire. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Asa. Stevie, thank you very much for your, for your talk. <clears throat> A number of things was really helpful for me. Um, you talked about the idea that people really do have a need to feel safe and um, to feel comfortable, be happy, joyous, and free. Those are fundamental uh, issues. And then you talked about the three conversations that um, were articulated, I guess, in a few books. And one of them, of course, is the, is the let's have a conversation about race. Uh, and uh, one of the things that is happening now is that there's much more of a conversation around race and your talk is around truth. One of the biggest challenges is around race and truth is uh, which calls to mind a book that says, The Lies My Teacher Taught Me. Mm -hmm. And so there's a fundamental breakdown in the historical understanding, historical analysis. Obviously, we're seeing you know, statues, people walking around with torches, protecting their Confederate statues, and people don't know what the Confederacy is, don't know what the Civil War was. So there's this deep, deep denial. The, you're probably familiar with Harvard University's implicit research study. And what it shows in the race category that there is a preference, there's a white skin preference. Whether you're black, white, Asian, doesn't matter. That's just the way society is structured. There's a natural inclination towards white skin. When I think of the same gender loving community, a number of ideas come to mind. One of them is the work that we did around HIV AIDS. But the other critical one is um, men loving men is a critical part of that. Um, and the issue around safety is an interesting one because I was able to see the relationship between, uh, I grew up in the suburbs and white community, grew up in the Catholic church, studied to be a Catholic priest, very much in the white world, my universities were white. But there is that, there's a barrier there. And I think the barrier partly has to do with what you were saying about safety. One of the things you talk about is Stephen in the chair. I mean, the difference there, there's a relationship there. And what I was noticing is that, you know, um, there's, a, there's a relationship. There's thinking, feeling, and acting. How do I think, how do I feel, and how do I act around the issue of, you know, white supremacy and, and what have you? How is my life informed? How have I carved out my life in such a way? How do I relate to you know, black men. So one of the titles of the book that came to mind for me is, how does a white man love a black man? And how does a black man love a white man? And there's probably a third one. I don't even deal with the title of that book. 
But because that's really what this is really all about. And I know that what brought me originally to TBF had to do with the concept of relationship and the concept of love. You know? um, and I'm radically aware and I experience very intensely this, this barrier that kind of what you're talking about. Because it's about safety. And it's like when you step out and move into an environment, you know, in this society, you know, you said between the world and me, and I thought about Thomas Coates' book, and um, the, the movie Thirteenth by Ava DuVernay, DuVernay is a powerful movie that really puts things in, into perspective. So, but the key thing is, you know, how do we have this conversation, particularly in the gay, uh, particularly in the same gender loving community, you know, about how we do race, how we sexualized race, you know, sexual uh, racism, you know, that whole thing. It's a real tough one. But we've not really had a conversation about it. And I've been coming here for a long time. And there's never been a, there's never been a, a way to, to do this, to have this conversation. And I'm sorry to say, but Donald Trump has opened this opportunity up to talk about race in a yeah. way that we've never had an opportunity to talk about it before. So I, you know, I don't I'm not trying to give Donald Trump any credit, but I'm sorry, you know, Obama didn't do this, you know. So there really is an opportunity for us to look at how close, how widely we define our world to protect our world, and can we include people of color other than, you know, when you look at the sexualization, you know, of, of color and that sort of thing. So, wow. so that <laughs> the steering committee needs to put a meeting together, a couple sessions, and find. Um, the right people, I'll be happy to, to help if I can, um, but to find the right people to do that. But I think the, the, at the core, and we can talk some outside if you want to, and, and um, at the retreat if you're coming, but at the core of what you just said is the same message that I'm giving. The core is connection, right? If the world is unsafe, if police officers are unsafe, we certainly need to work in a social justice venue, engage Buddhism against that actively. Um, if the conversation is not being had, we need to have it, you know, doing just what you just did, saying it's not okay not to have it. Um, and in the meantime, while all that's going on, it's really important for us to find connection. You join GBF, you have friends, you have a family, hopefully, that, that is nurturing. And to really value those, because it's in those moments when we do actually feel safe, when we actually feel connected, that we can make the best decisions about how we are going to engage with the world and how we are going to um, declare what's not acceptable um, and move move and uh, to dismantle it. Mm-hmm. Time for discussion. So, um, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers, so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.